Welcome to Be Simply. This is She, and I want to thank you for joining us today. We have special guest Stefan Schwartz joining us to deepen his conversation that he shared at TEDx Vail around the eight laws of change. He will share what is possible when we uh, come together and calibrate in the guise of change. In addition, he will share his wisdom that he has gathered over the years of doing uh, many forms of research. You will find his wisdom to be inspirational and he will give you an opportunity to ponder that which maybe you have not thought before. Without further ado, let's dive in with Stefan. So, Stefan. I would like to thank you for being here today. We are going to come together and shine a light on change, and you wrote a book about the eight laws of social change and did a talk on TEDx Veil. And from the time you uh, created that talk and wrote your book, we've gone through a lot of change from 2007 all the way to today, 2018. And it appears on the horizon that we will continue to go through a lot more change and metamorphosis. The one constant that we can depend on is change. If you can share what I really loved in your talk was that you had shared through the different decades our area of focus. And it really seems in the past probably three or four years that the focus of of change has been inspired by division. And if you can share with us from your perspective what that is doing to us socially and how we might uh, move beyond division and come back to unification. Well, the the principal problem that we are experiencing um, is the rise of what I call neo-feudalism, which is the enormous wealth inequity which is occurring in the United States, and and the um, and the, the real issue is who is the government working for? Is it working for the population of the United States or is it working for a small subset? And if you look at the data, you know, I, don't, I only care about politics in an anthropological sense. That is, I, I'm not interested in partisan politics. I, I, it's just a cat chasing its tail. Mm-hmm. What I care about is social outcome data because that's objectively verifiable. You know, what I spend part of each day doing is looking at research papers that are measuring social outcome data. That's things like infant mortality, education, incidence of sexually transmitted diseases, um, uh, imprisonment, uh, life expectancy. That's a big one. And when you when you look at these social outcome data, uh, you you really see that those social policies which foster well-being inevitably and universally, so far as I can find out, are always cheaper, more efficient, more effective, more productive, nicer to live under, and longer enduring. And that was part of what the TED Talk that I gave with at Vail I mean, that dealt with the eight laws of change, the principles that I discovered um, in the course of doing this social outcome research. But the, the bottom line is, if you foster well-being, people are happier, healthier, everything is more successful. And when you only make profit the social priority, things really go awry. And that, I think, is the central problem. Mm. And from an anthropological perspective, have you studied global communities where well-being has been the priority? I know from my friend that's an archaeologist down in Peru, the Incans at one point in time, they actually donated a month of their time to go help one another in other communities, and everyone was provided for. So if you had choose, I had choose. There was no hierarchy or uh, separation between one person or another. Um. Well, I mean, yes, of course, you can look at the, particularly the Nordic countries. I mean, it's just, it really is preposterous. Um, but, I mean, even in the United States, 
you can look at the different states. I mean, you can look at California compared to Kansas, for instance, or um, uh, Oregon compared to Wisconsin, or Wisconsin compared to Minnesota. Uh, wherever you see social policies that are predicated on the idea of fostering well-being, you see good outcomes. And wherever you see social policies which are have some other priority as the first priority, uh, you see uh, inequity, suffering, uh, less health, lower well-being, all of that. Um, because about 64% of Americans have never been outside of the United States, I don't think that uh, that's about, you know, the two-thirds of us. Mm-hmm. You don't, they, most people really apparently, just again, and this is based on the data, really don't have a sense of, of, of how different other countries can be, different in a better way. We, we tell ourselves so many lies that, um, that getting at the truth is very difficult. I mean, for instance, I, how many people know that a woman bearing a child in rural North Carolina, has a, that child has a, less of a chance of getting to its first birthday than a child born in Botswana? I mean, we just don't think about those things. How many people realize that a woman in Louisiana, for instance, has about six years less life expectancy than a woman who lives in, say, Hawaii or Washington State? We don't yeah. think about those things. I mean, if, once, you get, once you stop thinking in terms of politics and partisanship, you know, liberals, conservatives, that whole conversation, and instead you start thinking about well-being does this policy produce more well-being or does that policy produce more well-being i mean these are things that are not philosophical or speculative or partisan these are things you can objectively measure and get a real answer and that's what i stress and from your research and studies right now currently if we just look at the united states what states are looking like they're supporting well-being versus not oh california no question is is um it's it's quite extraordinary actually in fact one of the most interesting trends going on right now is that california let's just take one little piece because otherwise it gets too big so let's just take one little piece and that is the uh, exiting the uh carbon energy era every scientist who studies uh global climate change, for instance, all agree. I mean, I don't know, there's maybe 2.5% who don't or 1.5%. But anyway, 99%, 98% of, of all the scientists who study climate change will tell you that one of the critical things we have got to do is we have got to get out of the carbon energy era because of the effect that it has on the uh, global metasystems of the earth. And what's intriguing in, in that respect is if you look at California, California is making a really serious effort to do what most of Europe and Asia is doing. I mean, in Europe, the, the general, for most countries, their commitment is that there will be no carbon-powered vehicles on their roads after 2040. Mm-hmm. That, that's very close. And California is moving in that direction. And at the same time, the federal government is moving in exactly the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are trying to do everything we can uh, as a a federal policy to support carbon energy, sustain it, and and keep it going. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a 38% increase, for instance, in, in oil drilling. Uh, we're doing everything we can to underwrite the coal industry. Uh, we have just put a tariff on solar panels, which is going to have, according to the people that study these uh, particular statistics, it's going to have an enormously negative impact on the uh, solar and alternative energy industries in the United States. So while we're going in one direction, the rest of the world is going in another California is leading the way, joining with Europe and Asia. 
And it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out because California is saying we are not going to permit, or, or they, they stated in the positive, we want to have electric-powered vehicles on the roadway uh, by 2040, 2050, and, and, um, and much less uh, carbon-powered vehicles. And the automobile industry is in, a, is, is in a kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Absolutely. If you can share, so when you just in that example talk about um, not being on the same page, and one of your laws mentions how you must collectively have common intention and how important that is. So you can speak to how to have common intention in your community and how to move past some of these hurdles that can rear their head, even when it comes down to economics, wanting to make money. Well, it's there's, it's there's, I'm not against profit. I mean, I'm not against making money. I'm right. simply saying that you have to make well-being the first priority, and then you have to figure out how to make lots of money. Um, I mean, you look at a guy like Elon Musk. That's a good example. I mean, mm-hmm. he's one of the entrepreneurs who has figured out that huge fortunes are going to get made in the conversion to a new kind of economic order in which well-being is the first priority you can make all the profits you want as long as you produce well-being. And that's what he's trying to do, and you can see how successful he's being at it. But if you, if you um, uh, look at this thing from the perspective of what an individual, a sort of ordinary person can do, that's where I got the, uh, the, the eight laws. I didn't actually invent these laws. I simply discovered them as patterns when I looked at social outcome data. So just to take the first law, which you mentioned, and that is that the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. Well, everybody knows if you've ever been in any kind of committee, it's hard to get people to get on the same page to to hold a common intention. And so the solution is not um, outside of yourself. It's inside of yourself. And it's finding common ground that you and other people can share, not on political philosophies, but again, on social outcome data. You know, what will make us happier? What will make us healthier? What will make us more prosperous? All those kinds of questions. And, mm. and um, if you can get a group of people to share a common intention, then you have produced really the most powerful force on earth because there is no force that is more powerful than the collective intention of a large mass of people. I mean, that's what changes. That's what, uh, that's how Gandhi was able to get India independence without a war. I mean, that, that, you know, we don't think so much about things like that anymore, but imagine that this great big country, which was the crown jewel of the colonial empire of the British and he was able to get them not he didn't have to have a war to get free he he produced an effect which made the British choose to leave India and he did that by creating common intention Mm. so when you get people to create common intention I'll give you another example the Me Too movement that's going on right now about treating women decently I mean this is amazing to me but the idea that we are finally in the second decade of the 21st century beginning to realize that that uh, men do not have the right to beat up on women and abuse them good heavens what an idea that it's just mm-hmm. now taking hold but that the change is coming because a collective intention amongst both women and men has emerged and it is compelling change in the same way that, uh, you know, uh, you're probably not old enough, but when I was a boy, you'd go to somebody's house and there'd be an ashtray and a pack of cigarettes and a lighter. And, um, I mean, everybody had them on their coffee tables in their living rooms. You never see that anymore. Why? Not because the government passed a law or the president, you know, made a pronouncement or whatever, but because individual people made the decision, I'm not going to do that anymore. And right. when individual people hold collective intention and act on it, things change. 
Okay, beautiful. And if you can expand when you use the example of Gandhi and Me Too movement, both are uh, connected to violence in different ways. Gandhi's uh, way to create change through nonviolent opposition and collective intention. If you can share a little bit about uh, I, violence, it's interesting because nature by if we really step back and look at Mother Nature, it's violent at times, right? You know, there's just violent storms, all these things. And within us, there, we can feel uh, anger come up, rise up. If you can share with the listener, because you mentioned in your talk how sometimes that happens, you might think negative thoughts or have to, like, use restraint to not <laughs> maybe act out what you're feeling. Uh, it's about how to harness that fire that rises up in all of us for the positive for uh, beneficial change, for well-being for all? Well, you know, if you think about anger, um, most of it comes out of fear. It's fear that you're going to lose something, you're going to lose status, you're going to lose some physical possession, something. It's, it's, all of this comes out of, of, of a sense of insecureness and fear and that's what drives, um, there's a very strong correlation between fear and racism and um, uh, a certain kinds of politics. And, and you can see it happening now in the United States. We, I mean, we, you know, I was, when I was a teenager or beginning when I was a teenager, I was involved in the civil rights movement. I got to hear Martin Luther King give his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And at the and then in '64, the Voting Rights Act '65. I mean, I thought, and I think a lot of people my age probably thought that, you know, we were gonna we were gonna exit the the um, racism that had been such a big issue in the United States. But we haven't at all. In fact, if anything, racism is as bad as it was when I was a boy in the '50s. I mean, we have in the United States a real white supremacy crisis. I've written about this at some length. I, in the Eight Laws of Change, I, I tried to provide ways in which people could do this. And again, it has to do with these eight laws of how do you nonviolently make change happen. And, and it's important. The, the reason, one of the main reasons that nonviolent transformation of change is important is that it's much longer enduring. Change which results from violence doesn't last very long. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, I mean, National Socialism, Nazism, really uh, only lasted between 10 and 20 years, depending on how you calculate it. The Soviet Union and communism, which was, again, when I was well into my middle age, that communism was this huge thing which was threatening the United States. You never hear anybody talk about communism. Well, I won't say anybody, but you rarely hear people talking about communism. It only lasted the lifetime of one person. I think it was 73 years. And then it disappeared because it failed. And the reason that it failed was that it did not foster well-being. It had some other priority going on. I recently from returned from China, and I was very struck. I spoke at a conference there, several conferences, and, and I talked with Chinese officials, and, and one of them said to me, we tried communism, it didn't work, and mm. now we're going to do an ecological civilization. That's, that's mm. what we're committed to. And I said, what does that mean? And basically he said, we're going to support well-being. So how do we do that as individuals? The answer is, I mean, it's so simple that you think hardly would credit it, but it's true. The way you make change happen is that every day you make dozens of choices. You buy things, you purchase uh, services, you, you know, you fill up your gas tank, you buy some toothpaste, whatever. You make these choices all day long, and most people don't ever really even think of them as choices. They just do what they do. But if you are aware that every time you make a purchase, you're really making a vote. And if you choose things not 
just because you've always done it that way, but because you become conscious that you're making a choice and that you always make of the choices available to you that choice which is the most compassionate and life-affirming and fostering of well-being. Simple. I mean, it just seems so very simple. And you tell 10 people that you're doing that as a discipline, and you invite them to join you and to tell 10 of their friends. And if you think about that, just the people that listen to our conversation, let's say that a thousand of them, I just, that's a number I just pull out of my head. Let's say that a thousand of them hear us discussing this today and they say, yes, I'm going to do that. From now on, I'm going to be aware of the choices that I make each day and the choices of the options available to me. Even if the options are not all good, one of them is inevitably better than the others. I'm going to choose the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. Well, if a 1,000 people did that and they told 10 people, now you got 11,000. And then if they do it, you can just see how it goes up. It's a, you know, 10,000, 100,000, know, a million. A, 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 if you look at how major social transformations change, how, they really, how that really happens, what you see is it always starts with a little group of people who basically make a decision, I'm going to support whatever the change is, and I'm going to make decisions daily that support that, and I'm not going to choose things that don't support that. And if you track back, whether it's Greenpeace or women's suffrage or uh, Gandhi's getting India freedom, you see that all of those things begin because ordinary people make a decision, I'm going to choose the life-affirming and compassionate choice. Mm -hmm. Uh And... If you can share, you know, you, you mentioned about racism and, you know, at the beginning of the talk, talking about division. How do we foster change uh, where people are attached to a certain belief system, system, which is pretty much predicated out of fear? How can one, if they want to create that equality uh, for self and others, be a change agent when it comes to racism? Well, you can't. You cannot argue people out of things like this. Research shows that facts don't matter, and that's part of what's going on in the United States right now. We have a about, I don't know, depending on which study you look at, somewhere between 30 to 38 percent of the country really live in a fact-free reality. That is, they're making their decisions not on the basis of facts, but on the basis of what they call values, but what it really means is prejudices and biases. And you can't talk to you cannot reason people out of that because it's not based on facts, it's based on their emotions. So the way you do that is that you simply do you you in your own life and in the lives of people around you, you encourage people to make choices which foster well being. And the people who are opposed to that will see that happen. And mm-hmm. they will want to be involved because everybody wants to feel happier and be, you know, be healthier. And we're not going to be able to do it by arguing with people. I, I mean, if you look at the political discourse that goes on in this country, I mean, you turn on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and Basically, there it's set up like a sports contest where you got one person on one side and the other person on the other, and they just kind of scream at each other. So nothing ever changes in that way. What does change is where you make a decision. And again, let's look at the Me Too thing. I mean, what happened there? We we had a handful of cases that suddenly became prominent because the people involved were prominent, and the media gave them a lot of coverage. And women looked at their own lives and thought, nope, I'm not going to participate in that anymore. I'm going out. You know, my wife, uh, I live on an island uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and I can remember the women sitting making those little pussy hats, those little pink hats, Mm -hmm. and, and going out and just saying, nope, we're not going to make those choices anymore. We're going to make different choices. 
We're going to choose things which are life-affirming. We're going to choose things which are fairness. We're not going to participate in things which are unfair. And they compelled the entire society to focus on that. And you can see it happening. I mean, it's going on as you and I are speaking. We're discussing people in the White House who are spousal abusers. And suddenly that's become a big issue and women are talking about it, and they're talking to men about it, and men are waking up to it, and, and we're seeing change happen. And now it's driving a, a small group of people crazy because they want a patriarchal, uh, you know, the men are in charge sort of world. But it's shifting, and it's shifting not because any law is being passed, but because ordinary individuals in their day-to-day life are making different choices. That's the key. And when you talk about well-being, have you noticed in your studies and research uh, where uh, there's a division in what well-being is, or are there some consistent, I don't know, measurements that people all are naturally on the same page that they consider well-being? Well, um, I mean, if you look at the United States, again, based on social outcome data, you can see, for instance, that in the, uh, uh, the southern states, people are much less healthy, much higher incidence of diabetes, uh, particularly type 2 diabetes, much, much larger amount of obesity, morbid obesity particularly, lower lifespans, and it all has to do with eating habits. I mean... You know, I, I don't want to get too political again because this politics is not what interests me. Mm-hmm. But, but there is a very strong correlation between fundamentalist religion, conservative politics, and ill health. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know it makes people crazy to hear that, but <laughs> true. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm sorry it makes them crazy, but it's a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at the southern states, for instance, what you see is that because of the choices that individuals make, they is producing uh, really dysfunctional societies in which there is the, where wealth and equity gets to be so great that people are really living in different worlds. Mm. And, and part of what happens when that occurs is that because they live in different worlds, they don't they just really don't understand what the other people are talking about. Um, and that, when that happens, then you get a fundamental disconnect. You get this kind of neo-feudalism, which is what really worries me about the United States. One of the things we have, you know, we now have, what is it, four people have as much wealth as half of the population. So... If you have that kind of wealth, you don't. You just not, you're in a different world. You know, I, I I know a few people in that world, and you know, I, I was I was in New York, and a friend said, "Well, you know, I really have a hankering for this restaurant in Paris, and so why don't we just fly over? We'll go over tonight, and uh, we'll spend the day and have dinner, and then we'll come back tomorrow." Now that just isn't a statement that most Americans make. And yet, this person who was speaking was perfectly ordinary. He owned a jet. It was no problem. He, you know, he had a, uh, an apartment in Paris. I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything unusual for him. When you get to that kind of situation where you have that kind of disparity, then people are making decisions from two very different realities. And so that kind of inequity is uh, destructive of democracy. Mm, when you, you know, when you, when you can make decisions that are on such a different plane than the majority of people, you create that. That becomes a self-reinforcing trend. I'll give you an example of what, what one of the things that I see coming. If you look at the CRISPR research in genetic engineering, CRISPR is a technology for doing genetic engineering. And 
what you can see happening is the creation of a new species, mm. a homo superior. And it's going to happen because it's going to be very expensive in the beginning. It's going to happen that um, wealthy people are going to be able to do this. That is, you're going to be able to order up a child who's as smart as Einstein, as athletic as Michael Jordan, and as pretty as whichever movie star you particularly like. And that it will be able to, and that that, because it's called gene lining, that that will be able to be passed on to other children. To their, so what you what you end up starting with is a small group of people who do this, and then their children and their children and so forth, always have a kind of genetic advantage. And I can see the rise of Homo superior. So I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it it could very easily happen at the rate that the research is going within the next 75 years, for instance. And so we are at a place where, as a society, we have got to make decisions about are we a society in which we want social well-being or are we a society where we seek social exploitation? And the answer to that question is going to influence everything from climate change to education to, I mean, anything you like. Mm. And what concerns me is that we are not making decisions on the basis of well-being, whereas if you look at a country like Norway or, in fact, let me just take one little piece of this. Norway has the 11th best healthcare system in the world. That's not the best. It's the 11th best. And they spend about 7.6% of their GDP um, to maintain that health care system. We have the 37th best health care system. So we're uh, three times worse than uh, Norway, and we spend about 17.6% of our GDP uh, on health care, more than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. So the question is, suppose we could just get to be as good as Norway, not the best, 11th, and uh, we could spend the same amount of money that they spend, 7.6%. Uh, what would that mean? Well, the answer is it would, fr- it would suddenly free about a trillion and a half dollars every year for, that could be put to, health, to child care, uh, prenatal care, uh, elder care, uh, disability care, without changing the tax structure at all. All we have to do is get a health care system that's as good as Norway's, and, uh, and that only takes 7.6% of GDP to maintain it. Now, mm. Is that doable? I mean, then the question is, is that doable? And, and if it isn't doable, why isn't it doable? And the answer is, in the United States, is that we don't have health care. We have an illness profit system. The the entire system is set up to make profit. It's not set up to create well-being. You know, uh, and I mean, and you just see this over and over. I just saw a piece the other day that it cost, in in many hospitals in the United States, it cost $10,000 to get a rabies treatment if if a you know, if a squirrel or a bat bites you and, and, uh, it, and there's a chance it might be rabid, you have to get a rabies shot. When I was a little boy, I, I went out and tried to grab a squirrel and it bit me and I had to get these shots. $10,000. In, 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 in Europe, that would cost $1,000. So why does it cost so much more? Why does it cost something like $20,000, $30,000, depending on which state, to have a baby? I mean, mm. other countries don't pay that amount of money to have babies. And the mm. answer, again, is it's because the system is set up at, to only create profit. And it's, um, by the way, it's killing the doctors and nurses. We have mm. a huge deficit of physicians. Study after study shows that those physicians who are in practice are miserable they hate what they're doing. They hate the way in which they have to do it. They, they're trying to figure out how to stop having to do it. So the, the, the people who deliver that, it's not them. The, the doctors and nurses are just as much 
um, being exploited by this as anybody else. But the reality is, is that the, the end result of the healthcare system is that we live shorter lives and we lead less healthy lives and we pay vastly more than anybody else to live badly. Mm. And it's, again, because the choice is not to create well-being. Mm. And earlier when you talked about how we vote, you know, by, by where we put our dollars, where we, the choices we make in our communities and out in the world, and as it relates to well-being, can you share with the listeners a simple way for them to start to choose well-being as it relates to wellness? food supply or just maybe doing proactive medicine, whatever you might have found that works for yourself. Um, what I've noticed personally is as it was just to confirm what you're saying is that as soon as there's a demand, all of a sudden the bigger corporations or bigger entities start to offer those services or they start to integrate those offerings and that changes well on its way then. Well, I mean, you know, the best thing I can say, I think, not just about health care, but in general. Let me go through these eight laws. Maybe that's the way to get at this. Because people who listen to this can put this to work and, and it doesn't get lost. You know, if you get too granular, then somebody says, well, in my state, that doesn't, you know, that's mm. not what happens. So let me, let me deal with the general principles because it's the same right. everywhere. So the first law is, the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. We already touched on that. The second law is the individuals in the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. And what that means is I, I learned this from the abolitionists by reading their diaries. Um, you know, the abolitionists would say slavery is a moral evil and um, it must end. I don't know how it's going to end exactly, but it must end. And I'm going to do everything in my power to bring that to an ending. So that's, you have a goal ending slavery, but you don't have a cherished outcome. That is, you don't say exactly how that's got to happen. And that's generally true, whether it's health care or education or anything like that, is that the goal is, if it's education, we want the the most highly educated children not that has to happen in a particular kind of way because the way it will happen when you when you demand that it happen a certain way you create schism when you talk about the goal itself you create inclusion so law number three the individuals in the group must accept that their goal may not be reached in their lifetimes and be okay with this and I got this from the suffragettes and, and, again, from the abolitionists. You know, they in their diaries and in their correspondence, they would say things like, um, I don't know if this is going to happen in my lifetime, but I am committed. I remember reading a letter from a woman, a suffragette, and she said, I don't know if we're going to get to the place where women have the vote, but I am committed to working for that as long as I am alive. And I know that ultimately it will happen. Yeah. So you've got to be willing to do the work, um, even though you may not see where the goal is, because the doing the work is the thing itself. So um, law number four, the individuals in the group must accept that they may not get either credit or acknowledgement for what they've done and be authentically okay about this. And again, you see this in all of these these social movements that are successful, you see that people do it because it is the right thing to do, not because they're going to get credit for it. Now, everybody likes to get credit, of course, but nonetheless, you make a decision, I am going to make choices which are supportive of well-being, and um, I'm going to do that. I don't whether anybody knows I'm doing it or not. Mm. Um, Law number five, each person in the group, regardless of gender, religion, race, or culture, must enjoy fundamental equality, even as the various roles in the hierarchy of the effort are respected. Well, you know, one of the things that we need to recognize, we're high-order primates, 
And like all high or like all primates, we organize in hierarchies. So that's just the nature of being a human. But it's it's one thing to have a hierarchy of the effort. It's quite another th- 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 to recognize that regardless of where you are in the hierarchy, you are fundamentally no greater or lesser than anybody else, nor are they to you. So you have to have fundamental equality. Uh, that uh, Abraham Lincoln talked about this. You know, I'm the president, but I'm, I'm just a person like everybody else. I have the same issues, and, and so I'm governing to help average people. Mm-hmm. Um, law number six, the individuals in the group must forswear violence in word, act, or thought. Now, I will just tell you personally for me, starting when I was in the civil rights uh, movement and watched people getting clubbed by police and dogs being sicked on them, that my initial response was not perhaps as nonviolent as it might have been. Let's just put it that way. But you you have to get that violence is not actually a solution because it doesn't last very long. Because violence produces schisms you know there's a winner and a loser and they have the loser has a grudge and so they're going to work against whatever the winner wants and eventually there'll be another act of violence and somebody else will win and and so it's it's very short term i mean you can look at the monarchies of europe and see that play out in the middle ages very clearly you you have to be you have to really get that we are working for well-being not to get to a particular thing and not to punish the other people. Law number seven, the individuals in the group and the group itself, oh, this is a big one, must make their private selves consistent with their public postures. The level of hypocrisy that we are currently seeing in the United States in our public officials is just breathtaking. And these are people we, as Americans, voted into office. I mean, just the, the, if your private self and your public self are not one and the same, then whatever it is you're saying, you are not living. And you have to be consistent throughout. Law number eight, the individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. And I got this idea that I got this idea from Gandhi. I learned this from Gandhi. Right before he was assassinated in 1948, a reporter asked Gandhi, "You know, how in the world did you get did you force the British to leave India? I mean, it was their most precious colonial possession. The, the, the queen was the empress of India. How did you force them to leave? You have no job." In the government, you have no army, you have no official position, and you don't have any money. And Gandhi's answer was, it's not what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It's not what we said that mattered, although that did matter. It was the nature of our character, who we are as people, that made the British choose to leave India. And that's how he got freedom without having a war. Now you think, well, okay, that's just sort of one thing, and how, how could that, does that apply here? Let me just suggest this. You realize what one person can do. Gandhi got that from uh, Thoreau, who wrote when he was up in a 19th century transcendentalist thinker who was considered very eccentric at the time, Henry David Thoreau, and he he was sitting next to the Walden Pond that he, famously, and I've actually looked at it, and it is a pond. It's not a lake. It's a pond. And he wrote this, this, this little short book, uh, Civil Disobedience. And Gandhi was a young barrister, very ambitious, very upwardly mobile in South Africa, and he bought a first-class ticket to ride on the railroad. And um, they wouldn't let him do it. They made him ride in third class because he was not a white person. 
and it made him furious. And while he was in jail, they put him in jail because he made such a fuss about it. While he was in jail, he he somehow came across this little book that uh, that Thoreau had written, and he read it and he thought, "This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to go back to India, and I'm going to make sure that India gets its freedom." Um, and so he was guided by the civil disobedience, uh, this sort of extended essay that Thoreau had written. Martin Luther King, when he was beginning the, the civil rights movement, read about Gandhi, of course, and everybody notes that. What they don't note is that he, too, because Gandhi had, told, had said that that's what had, had done it for him, Martin Luther King also read Civil Disobedience. So what you've got is one 19th century eccentric man sitting next to his little cabin, next to this little pond, writing something which changes the course of history for Great Britain, for India, and the United States. Three countries, their histories were fundamentally altered because of the writing of one ordinary man sitting next to a little pond in the 19th century. So if you think you don't have the power to change things, you need to recognize that nothing changes things as much as the power of individuals. Mm. Beautiful. And I'm not sure how many people realize that, so I love that you shared that story. Uh, Can you share with the listeners uh, a simple call to action, something that they can do in this moment to be a change agent here right now at this moment? Absolutely. Um, I described this in in more detail in the eight laws, but it's so simple I can do it right here. It's called the quotidian choice. We've already touched on it. Everybody that hears this, Makes a de- if you will make a decision that from this day forward, all of the choices that I make about the things that I buy, the places I go, all of that, the television shows I watch, that I will always choose of the options that are available to me, even recognizing that none of the options may be great, but one of them is inevitably better than the others, that I will always choose that which is compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, and that I will tell 10 people that I am doing this and invite them to join me and to tell 10 people uh, that they know that what they're doing now. And if we do that, the people that will listen to this program can change the course of history. I know it seems improbable. You say, well, we don't have any money. We don't have any armies. We don't have any official position. We don't have a political party. All of those things we don't have. You don't need them. All you need to do is to make daily choices all day long, all those little bitty choices you make, that they are compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, and that you tell your friends you're doing it and you invite them to join you. And in that way, the people that hear this program can be responsible or changing the arc of history and bending it to be life-affirming. Mm. Beautiful. Well, uh, a great step forward for all of us. And if you can share, I'm going to share the links of your uh, work, but if you can share for the listeners where they can find you on the World Wide Web, and we'll also include a live link below. Well, you can, I write a daily web publication called The Schwartz Report. That's www.schwartzreport.net, uh, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, report.net. Um, you can get, uh, you can go to, if you're interested in my scholarly writing, you can go to academia.edu or ResearchGate and search on my name, Stephanie Schwartz, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. And there's a couple, a hundred or so papers of mine of all the research behind all of this. 
you can go to my personal website, which is www.stephanaschwartz.com, um, and you can get my books off of Amazon.com. I've even written a novel about this called Awakening, a novel of aliens and consciousness about extraterrestrials and consciousness. Uh, the Eight Laws of Change. You can get all of these all of these books off of Amazon or any number of other places because um, I, I write of this all I write about all day long. Um, I am uh, uh, if you write me, I, I I try to answer everybody, but I just encourage people. I really the, the great secret that nobody wants to tell you. Because they, if they did, then you would realize the power you have is that there is no force on earth more powerful than the collective intention of a large group of people. We actually even know how many people. Research shows that when 10% of any cohort of people, whether it's a church group, a school group, or a nation, when 10% of the cohort change their consciousness, the rest of the cohort must adjust to accommodate that. You have the power to create life-affirming change. Beautiful. Well said. We, Stefan, will include all of your links below. Might have to cut, have you back to talk about your other books, too, <laughs> if you would be so kind. Uh, you've okay. intrigued me. And I really appreciate all your wisdom, and I appreciate you being a change agent here on planet Earth and look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have a great day. You too. Once again, I want to thank Stefan for being here today. Please connect to his work below, and I'd like to thank TEDxVale for continuing to spread great ideas and inspiring us into action. Until next time, this is she signing out with a full heart, a soft gaze, a deep bow, and a namaste. Be simply 